breaking from our regular sermon series today to do a special message about church discipline. Um, our session had to admonish two of our members for habitually absenting themselves from worship without good reason. And uh, these two were not looking for another church. Sometimes people will decide they want to look for another church and they'll go visiting at different churches and that sort of thing. But they are those who completely stopped attending the worship of God altogether. So we summoned each of them to meet with the session. And we're very thankful that uh, one of them, Joseph Kubik, met with us on Wednesday. And, you know, you've been praying for him. And we're very thankful that he was willing to meet with us. We called him to repentance in the name of the Lord. And he is presently considering what he will do. So pray for him. Um, we're very glad that he was willing to meet with us and that he is considering these things. We would like if he had responded right then, but, uh, but pray for him. Um, I understand, I, I communicated with him a little bit this morning, I understand that he had an accident um, just yesterday and kind of injured his neck in the surfing thing. Uh, so, um, but pray for him as he's, he's down right now and in that way physically and uh, they, they, he'll use this time to really seek the Lord. We were saddened that Janita Hinken, who's the other person that we had to uh, admonish about this, refused to meet with us, and that left us with a little choice but to suspend her from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. These are public things because when you come and join the church, it's a public thing. You are accountable before God and before the other members of the church, the session and everything. So when these uh, public censures are, are, are brought to, to people... Um, so we're, we're saddened that she refused to meet with us and she has been suspended. That's a public suspension that, that you are to know about. We notified her by hand-delivered letter that this, we had taken this action after having summoned her officially to come and meet with us and her not refusing to do so. After we were assured that she had received the notification, then we sent a letter to you. Uh, you who are the members of the church should have received that letter. Um, and we're announcing her suspension today. So in announcing her suspension, we hereby call all the members of Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church to pray for her restoration. That's our desire. Of course, that is our desire. In suspending her, the session officially declares in the name of Christ that she is not living a life that is consistent with her profession. That's why we admonished both of these. They were not living a life consistent with their profession of faith. When anyone is suspended from the Lord's Supper, you the members are to obey the command of our Lord and His Word in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, which says, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother." But what does it mean to admonish someone? How does all this work? That's what we're going to try to look at today, try to understand today, I should say. We're going to look at it today in hopes of understanding that. Uh, for this purpose, I've chosen Romans 15, 14 as my preaching text. I'll read it to you now, um, and I'll read a little bit beyond that to just give it a little, a little bit uh, fuller of a, a reading going down to verse 21. But uh, 1514 is my primary preaching text. So this is the word of the living God for our admonition and instruction. The word, you know, is given for our admonition. That's what we're talking about is admonition. So here is the word of God, Romans 1514. 
Paul says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and around about Elycrium I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was unannounced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Thanks be to God for his precious and holy word. Now I want to begin by declaring to you what Paul says to the Roman church in verse 14. In short, if we kind of summarize that verse, you are able to admonish one another. That's what he says to the Roman church. And there's a sense, as we're going to see, that that's what the Holy Spirit says to us. This is a wonderful thing that we're able to admonish one another. But what does that mean? What, what does it mean to admonish one another? Well, in the original, the word translated admonish is nuthetao. Nuthetao. And it comes from two words. One is nous, which means mind. And the other is tithemi which means to place or to put. So it means calling something to mind, putting something in mind, like bringing it to mind. Now, we often talk today about raising people's awareness. Well, it's sort of the same kind of thing as that. You do something to raise people's awareness, bring something to their mind that they don't know about. That's kind of the idea. If you see a child that's mindlessly getting playing and getting close, mind, doesn't realize the hot stove beside him and he's getting near that hot stove and about to get burned on it. And you say, hey, watch out. Now, what did you do? Something was not in his mind that needed to be in his mind. Now it's in his mind. You say, there's a hot stove right there. And he, he, he looks around and he realizes, oh, I was about to you know, burn my hand or burn my leg or whatever. And uh, likewise, if you notice that the tires on your friend's cars have belts sticking out, you know, and you say, hey, did, did you notice your, t- your tires are really worn out? Oh, no, I didn't know that. You know, and he looks, oh, what did you just do? Well, something that was not in his mind, you brought into his mind. You admonished him, and there was a good outcome. And so you see that it's really a wonderful thing to be able to admonish someone. You, you, can, you can do this. It's a very powerful thing. You're actually able to take something that is completely out of someone's mind and bring it into their mind again. It, it, it captures them. They, they, they may not like what they see. They may, they may push it. But you brought it to their mind. You admonish them. You don't know whether they'll accept it or not. They might, they might get mad at you. They might resist it. 
but it's brought to their mind. Admonition is essential for us in the Christian church. It's, it's one of the reasons that, that we have the church. One of the reasons, not the only reason, but that, that we're an admonishing people. We admonish one another. Um, it, it is by admonition, after all, that we were even brought to Christ in the first place, wasn't it? I mean, because we're fallen sinners. We naturally, as the Bible says, we don't like to retain the knowledge of God in our minds. And so we suppress the knowledge of God. We put the knowledge of the true God out of our minds, and we make up idols in place of Him. So, so, but the witness of the church is the church lives for God and goes around talking about God, preaching about Christ and His salvation. They're putting it in people's minds. The true God is brought to mind in the people that see the church. That's why sometimes people don't like the church, because if they're trying to suppress the truth about God and hold to their idols, it's irritating to them because the truth bears witness that it is truth. And you don't like that. You, you want, it's too true. You know, if it, if it was just not true, it'd be fine. You know, somebody tells you that there's a, you know, a purple guy that's going to come and do something. Or, you know, it's just like, no, you know, this, it doesn't have any effect. But what a blessing it is and, and for, to, that we can admire. And for our children, they, they are baptized in the church. They grow up in the church. And from their youngest days, what is brought to their mind? The things of God. Obedience to God. Serving God. Responding to God. Trusting God. All of these things, as, as parents, we keep bringing them to mind. And the, they come to church. They hear these things. It's a tremendous blessing as God works in them as His own people that He has, he has called to Himself. It was by admonition that we were brought to Christ and of course, when I speak of the true God and being brought to Him, I speak of the, the triune God who is revealed. The true God is the one who is revealed in the world by His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who, who admonished us about our sin. He's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He's the one that brought, spoke by the prophets. And He admonished us about our sin, showed us what we wanted to put out of our mind, that we had sinned against God, that God is holy, that he needed to be, we needed to be reconciled to him, that atonement needed to be made. And then he brought that to our minds, and then Jesus came and fulfilled all that was required. He brought that to our minds, the gospel, and we proclaim that gospel. It brings the true God to people's minds so that they can be saved. When we take the admonition to heart, when we don't push it away, then we turn away from our sins, we repent of our sins, and we believe the gracious gospel that by trusting in Christ, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Now we have what the Bible calls a renewed mind, a new mind. We have something in our mind that wasn't there before. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so by faith, we believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. He is brought to our mind. through it. So it stays there by faith. We're made aware of all these things and believing we embrace them so that our life is transformed. But as believers who have renewed minds, we know something, don't we? We can easily get off track. Okay? God is not always in our minds the way He should be. We can become separated from Christ, alienated from Him in our minds, even by wicked works. 
we can forget that we are here for God. We just goes out of our mind. And I'm just thinking, oh, oh, I gotta have it. Oh. And we're all focused on something else, or we're all worried and anxious. Oh, what's gonna happen to me? Oh, wait a minute. You're here for God. We lose track. And so we're no longer fixed on him. There are admonitions all through the scriptures because we're like that to us as God's people. You know, saying, set your minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Or that the admonitions that these admonitions are needed because our minds get off. They bring us back. The scriptures are actually chock full of admonitions. And there's a verse in the Bible that tells us that they are. When, it, when Paul was using some examples from the Old Testament, then he made this comment in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So you read all these things in the Old Testament. What's that for? You read those stories in the Old Testament, those narratives. It's to put the living God in your mind. It's to bring him to mind. That's why we say, read the Bible. Like, learn, talk of these stories. Learn of God. If you think about it, the entire church, then, is an admonishing body. First, we have the apostles and prophets. What was their task? To bring God to mind, to bring his word to us. His very oracles. Paul describes the goal of his ministry in verse 15 and 16 is that of offering up the Gentiles to God. In this verse that we just read, he puts them, how does he offer them up to God? He puts them in mind of the gospel so that trusting in Christ, they're reconciled to God and live for God, and then they're an offering to God. Paul says as a minister, he uses priestly language. In the Old Testament, the priest offered sacrifices for sin. In the New Testament, Paul says, I offer the people who are reconciled to God in Christ is offering pleasing to him because Christ has saved them. This is what he says in fifth, the, the verse we were reading, the passage we are reading, 15, Romans 15, 15 to 16. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, putting to mind, right, because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister. And the word there is like a, a liturgist, a priest, priest of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What a grand thing this is that Paul brings to mind here to the people. You are an offering for Christ. You have been set apart to him as a pleasing sacrifice. You wouldn't be pleasing on your own. You're pleasing because you're joined to Jesus Christ, your high priest who offered himself for your sins. That's why you're an acceptable offering to him in Christ. They can be presented to God as a people who are now poured out for him as a pleasing offering. Then there are, next to the apostles and prophets, there are the ministers of the word. What is their job? To admonish us from the scriptures that the apostles gave us, to bring God and his ways to mind through the scriptures, Ministers are also like apostles to make people mindful of Christ through the preaching of the word. Preaching is admonition from the scriptures. That, that trusting in him and serving him and going on with him, they may be that acceptable offering. 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul sa says to Timothy, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Doesn't use the word, word admonishing there, but those are all aspects of admonishing. We preachers keep on reminding you. Peter says that, you know, in his epistle, I keep on, re- I'll keep on reminding you of these things as long as I'm here, and then I'm going to leave a record that will keep on reminding you after I've gone. He, and that's the epistle that he's writing that he, he leaves for them to admonish you. So I'll have more to say about official admonition by officers who speak for the whole church a little bit later. Okay, so uh, in, in that, that the elders are next in the, in, in the church. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, it says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Over you in the Lord, that means they have an a, a office of ruling in the, in the church. And admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So the elders, you see, are officially appointed to admonish people in the name of the Lord. We all do it as believers, but they do it officially speaking in behalf of Jesus Christ from heaven. So uh, bringing his promises, his commandments, his calling to his people. And again, I'll have more to say about official admonition later. And then there are the heads of households. As a head of household, you are to admonish your family. For example, in Ephesians 6, 4, what does it say? And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's what we're at again, at Nuthatel. So the goal of family worship is to bring God to your mind and, and to theirs. You are to do, in other words, you, you bring them to your own mind as one leading for worship and to the minds of those in family worship, your children, your wife. You are to do that all through the day as well to admonish your, your family. As you see things, especially maybe somebody has, doesn't have God in their mind and you come and bring him to, their, to mind again. That's what you're doing. And indeed, then all the members are to admonish one another in the church. If you ever see your brother or sister no longer mindful of Christ, then it is especially your duty to admonish them, to bring him back into their minds. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, that could be translated, you who have the Holy Spirit, okay, you don't have to have super qualifications. It's not saying you're, you who are super spiritual. It's saying you who have the Holy Spirit, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you be tempted. So you see that the church as a whole is engaged in this work of admonition. Everyone has a role to play from the apostles who gave us the scriptures to the smallest child. We are to constantly point each other to Christ. Jesus said that out of the mouths of babes and sucklings that God brings forth his praise. So we all have that role of bringing these things to mind. Now, you know, perhaps uh, you feel that this is too much for you. You, know, you say, how could I admonish someone? Who am I to admonish someone? I want you to notice what Paul says to the Roman church. He's speaking to the whole church, not just to the leaders. Notice the confidence that he has in the believers at Rome that they're able to admonish one another. He expresses it in verse 14. He says, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge 
able also to admonish one another. You are all, if you're Christians, you are all able to bring Christ to the mind of your brothers and sisters around you. He speaks for the church as a whole is able to do this. All of them in their various roles in the church. Notice what his confidence is based on. Two things. That they are full of goodness. Now that word goodness, it just means goodness. (laughs) It's like the real deep down goodness is what he's talking about here. It speaks of someone who is upright, who is kind, who has desire to help people, to benefit people. Now, that's one of the first fruits of the Spirit that's mentioned. Right? When we love people and we have this goodness that we want to see other people blessed. And that's a characteristic of someone who has the Holy Spirit. And then Paul sees another thing about them, a second thing. He also sees that they're filled with all knowledge. Indeed they are. They have the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, the fear of God. They know God through His Son. They know the gospel. They know God's commandments. They know God's call to service. Do you realize how much you know that people who are not Christians don't know? I mean, these are monumental things that you know. They put put you way ahead of anyone else. David says, I have more wisdom than all my teachers. You know, this is knowledge that makes them quite able to make each other mindful of him then. You're able to bring the knowledge of God to people who don't know him, what they need to know most of all. If you put these two qualities together, goodness and knowledge, then you have someone who, by God's spirit, is able to bring the knowledge of God to other people, to their minds. So now I ask you, do you have these two qualities? Do you have a desire, goodness? Do you have a desire for good, for other people to be blessed, for other people to know God? Is that part of your desire? Do you say, I don't care about anybody else? Well, then you don't have goodness. You're not not qualified uh, if if you don't have any of that. Do you have knowledge? Do you know God through His Son? Have you trusted in Him? Do you know the way of salvation? If you do, you're able to admonish others. You're mindful of Him, so you can make other people mindful of Him, right? He's out of their mind. He's in your mind. So you're going to impart that, what's in your mind, to their mind. Now, you may not be able to explain a lot of complicated doctrine. Like I said, there's different people with different roles in the church. But uh, you know that Christ is Lord and is to be obeyed, don't you? Isn't that one of the things that people need to know? (laughs) One of the basic foundational things? You know that He is a Savior and is to be trusted and relied on, or else people can't be saved. You know that. You can communicate that. You know that those who are separated from him need to cry out to him for mercy. That's what you do. That's what you did. You know that those who are living in sin need to repent and turn to him for forgiveness. And you want that for them, right? If you're a Christian, you want that. So I'm confident then, if those things are true of you, that you're able to admonish others. God's Spirit is the one who makes the admonition effective, whether it comes from an apostle or a little child, that it, it has an effect on someone. That little child, seeing a little child just you know, praising Jesus can, can turn someone around. 
or an apostle with a, a, a very strong pro- proclamation of heralding of God. That can also, but neither one will have any effect apart from the Spirit working. But each one does what they're called to do in bringing to mind these things. What people do with them is up to God's working in that individual, up to their response. So what are we to do then when someone's mind is not on God? How are we to go about this work of admonition? Well, first of all, how can you tell, before we do that, how can you tell if someone is not mindful of God? Well, the truth is you can't always tell. Sometimes you don't know because some people are really good at hypocrisy. I mean, they can play the game like they know God and they can talk about God. and all. You've got no idea maybe that they don't know God. You can't read people's hearts, nor are you required to. But often, often there are clear indications in people that God is not in their minds. You say, well, how can I judge that? You can judge it based on what you see because God has shown us what is, what is evident in people when are things that show that he is not in their minds. Now, what are those things? Well, first, if they don't obey Christ as Lord. Someone's not obeying Christ, that's not hard to see. And that means that they're separated from him. He's not in their mind when they're not obeying him. He might be in the mind of, in, in an idolatrous way, but he's not in their mind in a right way. For example, if, like the thing we've been talking about, somebody just quits going to church. I, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, they can tell you that they still feel close to God and they have a great relationship with Him. But you can say, no, you're deceived. Because the God that you're talking about is a God who calls His people to community, to fellowship in the church. We are the church. And we have communion together before God in the holy assembly that He's appointed Every week, a holy convocation, a calling together of his people to hear his word, to praise him, to sing praises to him, to call on his name. And so you're talking about another God if there's a God who's pleased with you when you're rejecting his call. How can they have a good relationship with him when he is Lord and they're refusing to obey his call to enter his church, to submit to the elders of his church, to gather for the holy convocation? Now, if they have a good relationship with some God who doesn't call people to be part of his church and worship him, then the God they have is not the true God. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul warns the Corinthians to never be deceived about people who disobey in other ways, who do not submit to Christ as Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So if you see someone that is living as a, a drunkard, in other words, they get drunk, they don't repent of this, they just go on in it, they just live in it. It's not where they fall and then they come back, but where they're living in it or in homosexuality or fornication or whatever it is, you can say, no, you don't know the Lord. Oh, no, I I think I have a really close relationship with God, even though I'm living in immorality. No, you don't. You know a different God. Paul says, don't be deceived. They don't know him. Like he says, and such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified. 
and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So there are people certainly that have been saved that have lived in these things, but they don't go on living in them. Again, they might fall sometimes, but they don't go on in it. If they go on in it, you can say you don't have evidence. Like right now, when you're living in this thing, you're, you're, you don't have God in your mind. You don't have the true God. You're not, you're not mindful of him, and you need to repent. So don't let anyone who is living in defiance of the Lord kind of dupe you and tell you that they have a good relationship with him. They don't. They don't have a good relationship. Admonish them. Put them in mind of the true God and that they have forsaken him because it's urgent. It's so important for them to know that so that they won't be deceived themselves. People deceive themselves. We're masters at it. Second, you can tell that they are not mindful of God if they do not trust him. If, they, if you speak about trusting in Christ and they say, well, you know, I'm a good person, so I think God will accept me because I'm a good person, I do good things, I try to treat other people well. You say, so like, do you think God, that you, your life is acceptable to God as it is? And Oh, yeah, you know, I, I'm really, I really do my best and everything. You have to say, no, that's not the true God. The true God says that we're all sinners and we, we, all, we don't love him the way we should. There's all kinds of things that we come short. And he tells us that we must be reconciled through his son. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross. And we lay that all out. If they're, if they're saying they don't trust in him, then they don't, he's, the true God is not in their mind, whatever God they might think of. It's not the real God. He's not in their mind. So we want to put God, bring God into their minds by proclaiming it. Maybe they're a true believer, but you see them not with God in their mind at a particular point in their walk. Maybe, you know, like today, they're, they're all anxious about something. What do you do? You come and put God back in their mind. You say, wait, you don't need to worry about what happens to you. Even if everything falls apart and you die, it's all, you're here for God. They say, yes, that's right. You bring them back. You restore them. That, that's, that's what we want to do. What harm can come to them if their lives are for him? If they live, they can live for him. If they suffer, it is for him. If they die, they can die for him. So now we are back to our initial question. Okay? I said we were going to talk about that. Now, how are we as a church to go about this work of admonition? How do we do this? Well, the scripture gives you steps to take when you see someone who is not mindful of God. You begin with basic admonition. And like, I don't mean to make this like a step thing in a way. This is just kind of organic. This is something that you just do. Okay, as a Christian, you see someone, you're concerned about them. You want to bring God to their mind. So if they're living in rebellion or denying the truth, you try to go and talk to them about it. Try to approach them about it somehow. Make it a priority. Like we saw in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey the word by this epistle, Note that person and don't keep coming. You can't have ordinary companionship with them because there's something serious going on here. Like there's someone who says that they're, they're a believer and they're, they're not trusting God. They've got, or, or, or they're living in defiance of him. You've you got to go and deal with that. You've got to address that. Don't keep company with them means that you can't simply just hang out with them like everything's okay. Because it's not Okay. This, it's not, this isn't supposed to be like a, a real mechanical thing that we draw up a bunch of rules that you can do this, but you can't do this. And, and sometimes it's, it's hard to put it all together when Paul says don't even eat with them. 
But, but it's the whole idea of that there's something big here that I've got to, I've got to address. The restoration becomes your objective. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral, immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's not talking about unbelievers. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. You deal with it until it's brought to a conclusion one way or another. Jesus tells you that if you go to them and they still not hear you, he says, don't stop there. What does he say? Go and get someone else because this is important. This is huge. Matthew 18, 15, moreover, your brother sins against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he still will not repent, Jesus says, don't let, don't let up on him. It's too important. Matthew 18, 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So together you're going to confirm to him that he be not deceived. He says, Maybe he says, well, I'm okay with God even though I'm you know, living with my girlfriend who's an unbeliever. I'm having sex with her or something like that. And you say, no, you're not okay. Yes, I am. I'm still, I'm still walking with God. Well, then you get a couple other guys to go with you and say, you're not. This is what the Bible says. Do bear witness together of what's going on. And it says if he refuses to hear, tell it to the church. He's not telling you here, Jesus is not telling you here to get up and announce it in the worship service at church, he's telling you first to go and tell it to the officers, to the elders who represent the church, the whole church. He describes them as two or three later on in the passage who are gathered together in his name and who speak in his name, who speak for heaven. God has appointed them to rule in the church. The word ecclesia that's used here of church means assembly, and it can be either it's used both ways in the Bible elsewhere. It can be either the assembly of the elders or the assembly of the whole congregation. But at this stage, you see, when it's first being brought, it's being escalated that this person is, won't receive admonition, then you bring it to the elders of the church, the officers of the church. And we, we know this because what Jesus describes here is what was already being done. Like you hear about people being put out of the synagogue. It said anyone that trusted in Jesus, some of the Jews put, said, put him out of the synagogue. Well, who did that? The elders. This was already going on. Jesus isn't describing something new here that had never been done before. He's describing something that was an ongoing thing and saying, this is, keep on doing this and do it in this way. So uh, we, we need to understand that. But the elders are appointed, you see, to speak for the Lord, to speak for heaven, for Christ who reigns with the Father in heaven. That's what Jesus means in Matthew 18, 18, when he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Who is he talking to? The elders. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When they speak together as a body, the assembly of elders. What began then with basic admonition moves to rebuke, and now it is before the elders. And depending on the nature of the case, the elders can begin with admonition or rebuke calling the individual to repentance. Now it's an official admonition, an official rebuke issued in the name of the Lord. If the individual still refuses to repent, then the elders have the authority to officially declare that that individual may not come to the Lord's table. This is what we did in the case of, of Yanita at this time. 
In doing so, he officially declared that she is not living a life that is consistent with her profession, and therefore that she may not come to the Lord's Supper. Paul also speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, using the language of the Old Testament to speak about the Lord's Supper with Christ being our Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us. He says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, the old life, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now the person you see that is suspended is marked out, and the whole congregation is to then be in this mode of admonition. You know, that, that's where we are, you see, with Yanita at this point. So sadly, if these efforts to restore her are still not heard by her, the elders will then have to remove her from the church. When this happens, she is no longer to be regarded as a believer. So you see, at this earlier stage, she's still regarded as a sister that is being admonished. But after she is removed from the church, then she's dealt with as an unbeliever. So we don't have any expectations of living another way than as an unbeliever. But we admonish her still, but now as an unbeliever. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 18, 17, continuing where he left off. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, an unbeliever. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, okay, you receiving people into the church, removing them from the church, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That shows that the elders speak for Christ. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything then, uh, that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. That's just not... The context here is not just any prayer meeting. It's true of any prayer meeting where two or three are gathered together. But this is talking about the elders acting officially as in, in removing someone or um, receiving someone into the church. Jesus is saying that they have the keys of the kingdom. He himself has appointed them and authorized them to do this. They're acting in his name. So that when they declare the person is no longer a part of the body, then they're no longer a part of the body. Heaven has spoken. This is a kingdom of God. Now, can they ever err? Of course they can err. If they don't do things according to God's word, then that uh, heaven does not concur with them. But in the ordinary course of things, the elders are acting in uh, accordance with God's word. So it is possible that this person that is removed might be a believer. But when Jesus says to regard them as a heathen and tax collector, that means that we are now to treat them in the status of an unbeliever. And maybe someday we'll see that they actually are a believer and they'll be restored. But they need to be evangelized in the meantime. We no longer admonish them as brother and sister. But now, 1 Corinthians 5, we don't associate with one who is called a brother, who's living apart with, from Christ. He's not telling us don't associate with unbelievers because then you'd have to go out of the world. Right? I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world. It says, I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those 
also who are outside, outside the church. Do you not judge those who are inside, who are members? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So the brother or sister who's inside is put out, and then they're now no longer a brother or sister. They're outside, and uh, you treat them accordingly. One person, once a person is put out of the church, we can actually keep company with them now because we're, they're, they're not professing to be a believer. Maybe they, maybe they profess it, but they're not officially in the church. We no longer admonish them as a brother. They've been turned over to Satan. So as a church, I think we've been weak when it comes to admonishing people. The session is largely responsible for this. We were seeking to give people space to work through things. And of course, that ought to be done to a certain extent. But we realized that once it was clear that, uh, that members were not planning to attend church, they weren't going to other churches, like thinking about going to a different church or something, they were rejecting God's call to, uh, to, to worship Him, to serve Him, to gather with His people. We should have suspended them much more quickly than we did from the Lord's Supper um, while, while they were working things out. If they come back, they can be restored. But we, we should not have let them remain in good standing so long as we did when they were not attending any church anywhere. We have asked those who are considering moving their membership somewhere to stay in touch with us. And if they're local here to attend once a month, if they want to remain as members in good standing, because we, we have responsibility to keep oversight of them. Unless it's the, if they move to a different city, of course, and it's a different story. But we're responsible to stay up with them if we recognize them as someone who can come to the Lord's table. So pray for us as we endeavor to be more faithful to God in our work in the future. I also need to address you about your role in admonition too. If you know that someone is living contrary to their profession, then it is your responsibility to make it a priority to admonish them. They won't hear, take someone with you. Like Jesus said, if they still won't hear, bring it to the elders. Failure to do this leaves people in the church who are living in rebellion against God, and sometimes the elders don't even know about it. Uh, we've seen situations where someone was, you know, they were in, in major fornication, drugs, everything, still a member in good standing, and uh, it was not known and to the leadership. If a person's having doubts, it's different. Okay, Someone can be having doubts or struggling with their faith. Very patient with them. You encourage them. You know, as long as they keep coming to church and they keep, they're not living in uh, defiance and rebellion against the Lord, then you bear long, long, long and patient because you want to see them restored. The priority, of course, is you want to help them. You want to do what you can to, to help them and, and minister to them, to admonish them, to, to bring Christ back to their mind again. Admittedly, these things are difficult to, to apply. We don't always know what to do, and we struggle with it. We often have situations where we see people sort of pulling back. And maybe we ask them how they're doing. They say, oh, I'm fine. And really? And they, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and what, what do you do? Well, you pray, and you encourage them, and, and you look for opportunities to influence them as you can. One important thing to keep in mind is we don't want to drive someone away who's struggling. Jesus doesn't break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. And neither should we. 
very often we have to wait patiently and leave it in God's hands with whatever the outcome will be. But the danger is that we use those difficult examples where it's not clear and the person hasn't really, they're not really in defiance, but they're struggling and that sort of thing. And we say, oh, this is just too hard. Well, you can't use that to say when it's clear someone is in rebellion against God and not doing what our Lord says. Then you don't go, well, it's kind of fuzzy. You know, I don't really know. It's not fuzzy. That's when you go and you address it directly. The question is, what do you do when you know that someone is sinning against God and not repenting? What do you do then? It's not so hard to discern, is it? If you don't do it when it's perfectly clear, why are you talking about difficulties when it's not perfectly clear? Go ahead and do the clear things first, and then you can talk about the difficult ones, right? That's the way we are sometimes. We say, oh, it's kind of hard to know exactly how we're to keep the Sabbath. So we're just not going to keep the Sabbath at all because it's hard to apply. Wait, what? No. <laughs> you, you apply it in a clear way and you work out the fuzz. Yeah, all the commandments are like that. You know, what, what, where's the line here? There's not always a clear line. But we, we, we do what's clear. We do what's clear. So this is very important. You'll become more skilled if you deal with the clear cases the way that they need to be dealt with and dealing with ones that are not so clear. But don't look to have clarity if you're not doing it in the clear places. We need to admit the fact that really the reason that we avoid admonishing those who sin is because it's unpleasant, it's distasteful, and it's awkward. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really the bottom line. It, it, it can make people angry at you. Outsiders can become very critical of churches that do this, especially in our day. We live in a day when even parental admonition is looked at as cruel because we live in a day when people's personal feelings and passions are regarded as sacred. They're more sacred than God and His will. What I feel and what my passions are is more important than what the Lord God says. So if I don't feel like doing something, that trumps anything that God says in our society. So if you call someone to repent based on what God says, contrary to that person's feeling, the world says, you are cruel. You are doing wrong. We never tell someone that, that their person in our society that their personal feelings and passions are sinful and wrong. And we're never to correct someone in our society for, for those things. If, if they tell someone else that they are wrong, well, well, well maybe it, then we're the one that's wrong. Well, maybe um, there's one or two things that will tell people they're wrong. <laughs> uh, child molesting, something like that. There's a few things that will tell people they're wrong. But for the most part, we won't tell people that they're wrong about anything. And most churches today need to be admonished about admonishing people and going through the steps of church discipline that I've outlined today because it's just plainly not done. I've talked to many people that said, I've never, I've been in church for, you know, 60 years or 50 years or whatever. I've never seen anyone disciplined in the church. I've never seen that done. But uh, we need to do it because our Lord tells us to do it. It's the same principle. He's the Lord. It's not how I feel. It's not whether I'm comfortable. It's what God says. If people think we're unkind, we need to rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. And brothers and sisters, in the Reformation... It was acknowledged that churches that did not do church discipline were not true churches. That was a mark of the true church. 
And there are many, many churches today that do not ever do church discipline. This is a serious thing, and it leads to the apostasy that we see in our society today, the unbelief. This is where it goes. So he told us that we would be rejected if we follow him, and in our society, this is an area where we're rejected. But we go on and do it because God says it. Now let's turn to our last point. Why does our Lord call us to go through the process of church discipline? We might object that it often doesn't do any good anyway, so why bother? Well, I'll use the Westminster Confession to articulate the reasons of why we are to do it. We confessed this earlier. It says, Church censors are necessary for the redeeming and gaining of offending brethren. Now, of course, that's obvious. What are you trying to do when you go in and admonish someone? You're trying to restore them. You're trying to bring them back to God. You're trying to put Christ, who's not in their mind, back in their mind again. They're separated. The mountains of Bether, the mountains of separation are there between them and God. And you want Christ to come like a gazelle across those mountains and come back to them again. You're, you're, you're praying for him to do so. You're calling on them to pray for him, to look to him that they might be restored. He's the one that takes away what separates us. He deals with us, what's in us. He deals with the, the guilt that we have, paying his atoning sacrifice for our sins. And, and he move, removes the separation so that we can be restored to God. That's our goal. Many times the Lord uses the admonition of a faithful believer to check the departing of a believer who's struggling. Call them back. Restore them. Renew their minds again. Now, you say sometimes it doesn't do any good. That's true. But sometimes it does. And that's up to God. We want them to come back. And this is what he's told us to do. The second thing that is outlined in the confession is that church censors are necessary for deterring of others from the like offenses. So take something like just habitually skipping church. You know, go, go on without addressing it. What's going to happen? Well, the people will start doing it too. Oh, you know, I'm tired, you know, just for no good reason. There's, uh, it's one of the problems that we ran into when we didn't deal with some of our members. I think that there's been a, a greater slackness in our church about attending church because we had people that were habitually not attending and we, we didn't do anything about it. We didn't say anything about it. This has led to a general slackness. You know, we need to be at the church services. They're, they're for our good, for our edification. We need to be here to hear the word of God, to worship God, to call on his name. You miss important instruction if you only come to one of the two services. You miss an opportunity to worship God. Why would you do that? The reality is if we don't have any standards, if we don't uphold the standards, you can say, oh, we have high standards. If you don't uphold them, you don't have standards. A standard is something that's upheld. And that's why we need to be careful with these things. Now, we have a lot of people in our church who are sick and, and who uh, have uh, you know, chronic health issues. And we're not talking about that. But if we want to see God move powerfully among us, we need to be here for a stated worship. We have upheld standards in our church, I believe, for marital fidelity. We have removed people for uh, immorality and without repentance for, with regard to marriage. We've done that over the years. Once it's known, then we address it and we deal with it. And God has been gracious then to help us as a congregation, by and large, to maintain marital fidelity. But you see, if we drop the standard, 
then other people are going to go into it too because we won't have God's blessing here. Third thing it says, which is similar to what we just saw, is for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump. Now this is, again, very similar to the previous point, but it's a little bit different. You know what leaven is? You put it in the bread and it spreads to what's next to it, right? So this is talking about the kind of thing where you have somebody maybe that, they, like they reject the doctrine of the Trinity, something like that. If we don't address that, they, they go and they start gathering other people, start teaching them, and then it spreads. It spreads through the church. Or somebody that's immoral and they're enticing other people and bringing them into their immoral ways, then, and we don't address it, then it spreads that way. So there's, there's the one way where people that are not really directly connected, that's what we were talking about before, that they just do the same thing that they saw someone else do. And then there's the other one where the people are actually influencing. That's the leaven thing. So he says, purge out the leaven. Like, don't let those things go on without dealing with them. The next thing is for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. This is important. When we don't deal with those who sin, it shows that we don't think that what Christ commands is very important. That's our message. Okay, Christ said this, but eh, it doesn't really matter. Whoa, you, you can't say that. He's not, he, he, he's a glorious risen Lord and we're saying that he's not. He's a Lord, the Lord of all who is to be obeyed. He's not just a guy that's given us some advice that we say, oh, I think that's pretty good advice. I think I might do that. No, he's God. He commands us. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You don't just let people say, well, I don't think I really want to do. God said this. And as far as the holy profession of the gospel, what is that talking about? Well, when we don't deal with sin in the members, we make it appear as if the kingdom of God does belong to fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. Of those who, re of those who repent of their sin that uh, can, of course, be saved. And they will be fully pardoned through Jesus Christ. But what has become common today, there's been a shift, is to say that we embrace sinners even when they don't repent as members in good standing in the church. So we embrace everybody, it's said. So you can still be practicing adulterer or homosexual or, or whatever it is, and that's fine. That's, that's what's going on more and more in the church. That's not what the Bible says. It says those people are, who are practicing these things are not in the kingdom of God. And so what you do is you profane the holy profession of the gospel, that the gospel is a holy profession. It's not a profession where you still are the same as you were. You're changed. You, you put off the old man. You put on the new man. There has to be a turning away from sin. Such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So if you leave those who refuse to repent as members in good standing, we make people think Christ is okay with these things that the gospel doesn't transform people's lives. We pervert the gospel. We, when we carry out discipline, we make it clear that living in such a way betrays one's profession of the gospel. And then the next thing the confession says is that, for, and that, that we uh, church censors are necessary for the preventing of the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. We learn from 1 Corinthians 11 that when sin is not dealt with and persons are living in sin and 
still not dealt with and partaking of the Lord's Supper, that what happens? It can lead to the members in the church being disciplined by God, chastened by God. Not just the ones who are doing that, but all the people. Remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament when he did what God forbade and Israel lost their battle. The whole, they all lost the battle because this man had sinned. And so in the same way, if there's sin and we don't deal with it, we're causing God's ordinances to be profaned, his holy seals, and they were going to have trouble. Today, we do not think in terms of corporate reality like this, corporate identity. But even though we don't, God still does. And so we need to. If one person sins and it's not dealt with, his judgment can fall on the whole body. We are a body. What one does affects the others. So we should all pursue the peace, purity, and prosperity of the church, as long as we're members of it. All three of these are compromised, peace, purity, and prosperity, if we do not deal with those who sin according to God's holy word. So you see that there are lots of good reasons for admonishing one another. If you know Christ, you are able to admonish because you are full of goodness and knowledge. The primary requirement is that you are mindful of Christ. When that's so, then you can make others mindful of him. If he's in your mind and you're serving him and you're walking with him and having communion with him, then you can bring him to the mind of the people around you. If not, you can't. But let me encourage all of you right now to be sure then that you are mindful of Christ. If you're separated from him, there's one thing that you need to do. You need to turn to him. What did I say before? Christ is a savior we don't come to him as one who has cleaned everything up and so now we can come to him. We come to him as one who is ruined and out of fellowship with God and we say, Lord, have mercy on me. You deal with what has separated me from you because I can't deal with it. You deal with it. You change me. You transform me. You pardon my sin by your sacrifice that you have offered. You have to be the one that pardons me. I can't offer a sacrifice for my sin. It's you who has done that. You who are the one who has done that. And you are the one who can take this stony heart and change it so that I will love you and so that I will serve you and follow you. Lord, I am here for your salvation. You do your work. You take care of what has separated me from you. And then you will have Christ in mind and you can go forward in serving him. There is no reason for you to be separated from him. As long as you are alive in this world, you can come to Jesus Christ and he will hear you if you call upon him in sincerity. Please stand and let's indeed ask him for mercy now. Oh Lord God, we come before you recognizing that you are God, that you are the Lord, that you are the only Savior. There's no one like you, Lord. And we come to you pleading with you, Lord, to, to have mercy on us as your people, oh Lord. Look upon us, Lord, for we know that that we come short of your glory, that we have sinned against you in so many ways. But Father, we praise you that you are a God who is a restoring God and a merciful God. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. Give us peace, Lord. Help us to have a desire for, for you, to, to live with you as our God, to have you always in our mind, to be living before you, to have that renewed mind that lives in the orientation of the Most High God rather than in some false orientation. 
Father, this is the reality, the, the world that you made, the world of which you are the judge and the Lord. And we pray that we would not push that away, that we would not suppress that. For there is a tendency in us to do that, and certainly a tendency in our world. And we pray that you would help us to be those who shine the light, who bring the truth to people, our brothers and sisters, as well as those outside. That, Father, you would make us to be a people who are, who are truly your servants, Lord, and have the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, work in us, please. Work in us in a congregation. Forgive us for our sins. We do pray, Lord, for our sister. We pray earnestly, oh, Lord, that you would wake her up, Lord, that you would show her her transgression, that you would show her that she can't make up how you are to be served, that it's not hers to decide. We pray, Lord, that you would grant her repentance, that you would visit her, O Lord, that you would use even the admonitions that have been given to her to wake her up, Lord, and help those who are around her, Lord, to to have, have wisdom in knowing how to admonish her at this time. Oh, Father, we plead with you. Do your work. We also pray for our brother that we admonished. And we pray, Lord, that he would hear and that he would turn and that he would not go on in the way he has gone, that he would change his course. Father, we see even indications in some ways of of your hand upon him, Lord, of chastening him and and dealing with him. And we pray, Lord, as he has been willing to, to hear the admonition in terms of listen to it, we pray that he would hear it to heed it. And that he would indeed repent and respond to you and realize that what he's done has been wrong. And that he would acknowledge that and he would go forward, Lord, to to walk with you. How we pray, Lord, that you would help all of us because, Lord, we would confess that, that day by day we go up and down. Sometimes we're mindful of you, sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're going astray from you and we're hardening our hearts and pushing you away. Sometimes we're returning to you and We thank you, Lord, that that you continue to bear patiently with us. And we pray, Lord, that we would know of your exceeding patience and grace, that we we would see you as you are and not as we would make you up to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's come now to the Lord's table. Receive now the blessing of our Lord. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.